Yeah, hopefully you guys are all with me in 1 Samuel. And so we started this book last week, and tonight we are going to be finishing this book, 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 16. So make your way with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 16 if you can. And if you need a Bible, just go ahead and slip out, and there's one right in the back there. You can help yourself to it and follow along with us as we look at number of different scriptures and chapters and make our way through and learn these great lessons here tonight for us. So thanks for coming, everybody, tonight. Now, um, what we looked at last week, we just kind of started off, looked at the first 15 chapters. We got into, of course, you know, what the book of First Samuel is all about. We're not really sure who wrote the book of First Samuel. Many believe it's Samuel that wrote it. Um, and then also having some others because he passed away before the book was finished. So some believe Nathan and Gad were also contribute, uh, contributing to the writing of this. But nonetheless, um, the whole theme of this is really the establishing of the kingdom of Israel because you'll recall this is a transitional book because it brings us out from that era of the judges, which is characterized by the last verse of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? And so it was a... a, a uh, an era marked with just unrighteousness of unabandoned sin. And, and so it was a wicked time. And so God is now, in first time, really looking to establish the nation under a, a king. And so we see the book here divided up under three characters primarily. And this is the way that the outline really unfolds is, first of all, Samuel, who is Israel's last judge. And then Saul, Israel's failed king. And then David now, who is... Israel's greatest king, all right? So last week, we primarily looked at Samuel and then into Saul, all right? And you could say that these three are also divided up. Samuel the prophet, who's, he's, the first, he's the last judge, but the first prophet of Israel. Then you got Saul the politician, and then you got David the poet, because Saul was a man that was really marked by looking to please or appease the people. He was a politician at heart, right? He wanted to be seen and really praised in the eyes of men rather than him looking to be one that was praising God. David, on the other hand, he's a poet, man. He is looking to simply praise the Lord, to honor the Lord in what he does. That's why he's known as that man after God's own heart. So this is the way the book really unfolds and breaks down for us. So now we really, you know, having taken a look at Samuel and Saul, more importantly, looking at the rise and the fall of Saul, as he, you know, we saw in the last part of our study last week, how pride set in in Saul's life, arrogance, disobedience, and it got in the way of him serving God. And it's seen clearly in those last few verses of chapter 15. In fact, look at that with me. Back up just a bit, just to give us a, a bit of a context coming in now. Chapter 15, verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So that was the, the way that we left off last week, that Saul is being told once more, Saul, you're done, all right? You've continued to walk in disobedience. You continue to walk away from the Lord. So now God's gonna take the kingdom away from you and give it to another, one who's better than you. That would hurt, wouldn't it? Hearing those words, somebody who's better than you. But for Saul, that really dug in deep because he's a man that's built on pride. 
And we're going to see, as we move along, he's a very jealous man, and so this isn't sitting well. But now we move on to the man that God has set aside all along to be the one that would lead this nation of Israel. And the rest of the book, and, and 2 Samuel as well, really details the life of David. And it continues to show the contrast between the man that God uses in David and the man that God loses in Saul, in the sense that Saul has walked away from the Lord. Saul wanted to be a rock star, didn't he? He wanted to enjoy the accolades of the people. Now, though David is a star with a rock, all right, he's not that kind of man that's looking to receive all the accolades of men. He's not looking to be praised, but he's more interested in God being praised. And so we transition now from Saul to David, the man that God has set aside. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. (coughs) Excuse me. So Samuel, he's kind of taking the rejection of Saul kind of hard. And you might wonder, why would you be mourning over this? Why was Samuel so bothered at this? Well, I think partly because Samuel saw in Saul such potential. Remember, Saul was a man that was like head and shoulders above the rest. He was handsome. Everybody looked at Saul and go, man, we want this guy to lead us out in a battle. This is the right fit for us. And with Saul, there was a lot of potential. He started well, but he didn't continue on that path of trusting the Lord, following the Lord. And so Samuel, I believe, he sees this man that had such great potential, but has kind of squandered it away. Saul was a life of unrealized opportunity. And it's a very sad thing to see in a life that God could otherwise use greatly, just have those things squandered away. And it seems that Saul's true character is coming out here because, you know, Samuel's sitting here like, God, I don't want to go and anoint another guy because Saul's going to kill me. Samuel's kind of worried because we're seeing now this character of Saul that's really moved by jealousy and, and, and pride and, and pettiness. He's like, I don't want anybody else to take my place. And Saul's worried that Saul's gonna, or Samuel's worried that he's gonna kill him. And we know that Saul had a tendency for violent outbursts, and we're gonna be seeing that full well as we move through this book. Again, just another reason why Saul here is definitely being rejected. Well, look at verse six. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at, this, at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that. As the first son comes out now, right? Eliab, he just has his appearance and, and Samuel's like, Got him. This is the man. Surely the Lord's anointed is standing here. This has got to be the guy. I mean, he's the oldest. He's like the guy that just looks like the hardest worker. He just seems like this is the right fit now. 
But Samuel's kind of ready to make the same mistake that the nation made to begin with when they looked at Saul and said, this has got to be the guy. This is the right fit. They all went off the outward appearance but didn't get to know the heart of the man. And Samuel responds the same way now when this first son comes out. And what a great principle this is, one that we need to live by. We can't judge based on externals. We're so prone to to judge a book by its cover, aren't we? Aren't we so quick to just kind of make our, our conclusions and judgments based on what we see before we really get to know? See, God never uses that system of evaluation, does he? He's always looking deeper, getting to the heart of the matter, which is always a matter of the heart. That's what's important before the Lord. And in fact, we see this kind of lived out even in Jesus's ministry because who is Jesus always, always kind of being opposed by? It was the religious leaders. And it was the religious leaders who always try to put on this, this air about them, this external look, like look at how righteous and holy we are because of what we do. And what did Jesus have to do? He always had to confront them and combat them and say, listen, you're nothing more than whitewashed tombs. Inside are nothing more than dead man's bones. You might put on the show that everything's great and wonderful, but inside is just death. There's no life there. Jesus had to combat this kind of principle that people were trying to live by externals rather than the heart. And you see, God always goes right to the heart, doesn't he? And it's something that we can't hide before the Lord as much as we'd like to at times. As much as we think, well, if I just do this and I put on this kind of show, then everything's gonna be fine. But God sees right past that. Sees right past it. God's interested in what's going on in the heart. So as the scene unfolds to anoint one of Jesse's sons, Seven of his sons pass in front of Samuel and none of them are the right choice. So Samuel's kind of wondering, is this all you got, Jesse? Is this all of them? Because I'm not, I'm not getting that tingling in my neck that this is one of the anointed of the Lord here. But Jesse remembers there's, there's one more out in the field. He's like, he's kind of not even thinking about the one out in the fields tending the flocks, right? So he says, oh yeah, there's, there's one more. My boy, David. He says, out in the field, he's tending the flocks. And, and isn't that just such a great picture of what God really intends for the king and for really anybody in leadership to be the one that's out serving and serving in a way that he's tending the flock? Isn't that what God desires in us as we serve him to be those that are just coming alongside, caring for and tending to those around us? That's what God desires in a, in a leader in a king for sure. So he calls for David. Simon calls for David and, and David comes in and there's some physical descriptions made to basically show that this guy didn't fit the bill at all as king, right? Because he comes in and it says there, um, oh, let's see here. It, it says in verse 12, so he sent and brought him in. Verse 12, now he was ready with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is the one. David comes in, speaks of him being ruddy, which means red. Some have interpreted that to kind of mean he sort of has this red hair or others see it as being this fair complexion, right? You know, those with red hair can't be on the sun very long. You know, they burn real easy, so fair complexion. So some believe that's maybe what David is looking like. He's not looking like his kind of counterparts around Israel here right? The fellow Israelites, he's, he's got this light, fair complexion. He, it says he has bright eyes. Some believe that to be 
uh, blue eyes, which again was kind of uncharacteristic among the Jews, and he's good looking. David looked more fitting for the cover of GQ than he did for the throne. And so he comes in, his physical attributes and descriptions are kind of noted to say, listen, this is not the guy that most people would be picking to be the king. Josephus records his age at this time to be around 10 years old, while others put him around 15 years old. So somewhere in that, in that age range, so he's a young guy right now. And so Samuel anoints him, not claiming him to be the king now, but for a future day. And as he does, it says in verse 13, that the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And in contrast, it also says in verse 14 of chapter 16, verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, I got myself tangled up here, hold on one second. There we go, all right. Throw that over there, sorry. Verse 18, then one of the servants answered and said, look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Now the question is, why would God send a distressing spirit? on Saul. God removed the spirit of the Lord from Saul because this is what Saul wanted. He's been doing everything he can to kind of pull away from the Lord and, and, and disobey the Lord. So in removing this protection, it opened the way for Satan to tempt him and trouble him with a distrusting spirit. Now, understand this. Satan cannot do anything unless the Lord allows him to do it. Okay? Let's just be clear on that. That's why it's referred to as the spirit from the Lord. Even though this is satanically inspired, God never initiates evil. He will work through the attempts of the evil one for his purpose, but God's given man a choice. Without choice, we wouldn't know if we we're living for God because of our, our own desire or because we're being forced into it. So there are, are alternatives for us. And with all this, Saul had the choice to repent, but was so steeped in his sin and bent on rebellion that he just stayed in this place of sin. And so the Lord just simply removed his spirit, which allowed now Satan to enter in and to fulfill the Lord's purposes ultimately. So someone sees the need now with Saul getting a little bit off, <laughs> distressed, bothered, irritated. Somebody sees the need to bring a worship leader around Saul so that he can be relieved. And lo and behold, someone remembers there's a guy named David who plays the harp. How about I retrieve him and he can play music for you, Saul, and put you at ease? See, isn't that great? God just has everything working out so well, right? There's no coincidences when it comes to the Lord. I can imagine David at times frustrated, you know, that he's working out in the fields while all his brothers are having all the fun in combat. And to top it all off, mom's making him take harp lessons. I mean, David's probably sitting there and going, man, my life really stinks, right? Why do I have to do all this? He's thinking, what am I ever gonna do with this talent? And yet, lo and behold, here's God now, tapping on the shoulder for a specific purpose to bring him into the palace before Saul. 
and to begin to play before him, carrying out God's purposes and all this. I I think that's just so wonderful. Verse 23, the end of the chapter, and so it was, whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. (coughs) Now, there's something to be said for the power of worship. When you're feeling down or distressed, how important it is for us to get our eyes on the Lord and, and just begin to praise him. Remember what tribe it was that led Israel into battle, the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. Worship and warfare go hand in hand. Not only does it get our focus back onto the Lord, but it also causes Satan, I think, to be paralyzed and bound where he too sees the one who's standing with us. And Satan needs to flee. So often our anxieties are because we become detached from the Father. So we need to get ourselves back in tune with him. Just like David would say in Psalm 42, why so distressed within me, O my soul? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him. My Savior and my God. David would have to talk to himself when he was feeling down and discouraged. Why are you feeling this way? Get your eyes back on the Lord. Start worshiping the Lord. And how important it is that we are those that are having that healthy intake of just worship and being worshipers ourselves, Not allowing the, the troubles and the discouragement of the world to, to stress us out, to bring anxiety, but rather get ourselves concentrated back on the Lord. Worship is a great avenue of doing that. Well, chapter 17 now sets us up for the big moment in David's life that's really gonna you know, set him up to be the man now that everybody's gonna see. This is somebody worth following, all right? We're gonna see him put on the front lines and he begin to have the public support for him. So chapter 17 is all about David and Goliath. If you don't have any headings in your Bible, if you're wondering, what is chapter 17 all about? It's David and Goliath here. Now, Goliath is certainly not just a metaphor for a giant, all right? This guy was the real deal. Goliath stood about nine feet, nine inches. His armor was about 125 pounds. His spear, just the head of it, I believe, was about 15 pounds. Goliath would have towered over Shaquille O'Neal, who was listed at seven feet, one inch, one of the biggest NBA players. And here's now Goliath towering over that. In fact, um, Pete, coming up here real quick here. We'll give you a quick little visual, all right? Pete and I got to do this in the Valley of Elah where this battle went down. Look at that, all right? This is David and Goliath right here, okay? Now, if I were David, I'd be freaking out saying I want nothing to do with this. Usually with Pete, I'm saying the same thing. I don't want anything to do with you, Pete, because you scare me, but Pete's a gentle giant. Gentle giant, Pete. He's a great guy. Thank you, Pete, for that visual. I could have really had anybody come up here and it would have given you the visual, right? David against Goliath. Thank you. But um, so... But, but Pete fits the bill. So, and I even got to throw a rock at him in, in the Valley Vila, I think. You're, you recovered from that, right? Okay. I didn't have as much oomph as David would have had, but I went all out in that illustration. It was quite fun. So um, no, he's got no memory of it. That's it. Just a, a big bump that he's wondering, what's that from? So as we see in our passage now, chapter 17, here's the deal. Uh, you've all, you all know the story real well, so I don't want to go into a, a great detail, but I want to draw out some really good lessons I think we can learn from this. 
in this chapter now, we see that the battle lines are drawn. And so what happened? The Philistines are coming against them. This is happening in the Valley of Elah. In the Valley of Elah, you got two mountains on either side. The Philistines are stationed on one mountain. Israel's stationed on the other mountain. And what they would often do in, in warfare is they would send their best man out. It went mano a mano. It was, it was you know, one versus one here. And so they would send out their chief guy. And, and so the Philistines, they got Goliath. They sent Goliath out. So daily, Goliath's going out there into the Valley of Elah saying, come on, Israel, who you got for me? Let's go. And nobody wants to go. Nobody obviously wants to fight Goliath. They're thinking, man, we're going to be toast. And whoever won that fight, one versus one, well, that, that nation would basically win the battle. They would take the victory there. So Goliath is coming out. He's their ace in the bag here. And he just sent people running or gave them the runs. It was either way. It worked, right? But this guy just caused people to fear, and here they are just sitting on the sideline. They're not ready to move, all right? Now, interestingly, Goliath's name means exile or taken captive, to be stripped, to be brought in exile. It's exactly what the enemy wants to do. The enemy would like to take you captive, take you into exile, and strip you of all joy and life that God would otherwise want to bring us. And we wrestle with that often, I'm sure, where we're feeling paralyzed to go forth. The enemy wants to come in and put fear upon us to where we are just bound. We're like, we're like captive now. And joy is eluding us. The attacks and taunts of the enemy are, 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 are real. And for many, it keeps them sidelined. All the people of Israel were watching from the side, waiting for someone to step up. And it's gonna take a man half their size, but with twice the heart to step up now and to take action. And more so, David is a man of faith that we see in the scene. The key to fighting the giants is to have a greater respect or a, a, a greater faith in the giant God that we serve. Don't look at the giants in front of you. Look at the giant God that we have that causes us to overcome every single obstacle that is put in front of us. God wants us to be people of faith. Because fear looks at the obstacles and giants in front of you, but faith allows you to look over those and look to the God who is for you and with you and enabling you to fight through to victory. Fear is going to keep you fixed on the struggle, but faith will have you flying over the struggle. It's all in your perspective, isn't it? It's all in your perspective. And David gives us some great examples of how to defeat the giants and walk in victory. David's nothing. He's a... He's a He's a shepherd boy. He's playing the harp. Probably been picked on at school once in a while. But here he is. And he's looking at a giant and he's ready to go for it when you got guys like Saul head and shoulders over everybody else that's saying, I don't want anything to do with this. And yet David's ready to step out there and say, give him to me. What's the difference? Is it David more talented, more stronger? No, it's his perspective. He's looking at the God that's for him. Here's some lessons that we learned from a guy like David. In order to walk in victory, you need to ignore the doubts expressed by the faithless. Look at chapter 17, verse 28 now. Jump down to verse 28. Now, chapter 17, verse 28. Everybody there? Everybody with me? Yeah? Okay. Everybody's there? Good. All right. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, David's older brother, when, uh, when he heard, he spoke to the men, or sorry, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? 
Is there not a cause? What's Eliab doing here? He's kind of taunting his brother. What are you doing here? You just come down out of pride. You just want to see a showdown. And he's kind of mocking him. What have you done with those few sheep that you're looking after? Not even trying to, you know, kind of prop him up a little bit by saying, hey, you've got a, a responsibility with all those sheep. You know, it's like, what have you done with those few sheep that we have? Can't you just even take care of them? And so he's got his brother here just kind of looking to bring discouragement. You know, we're always going to have those people in our lives when we're ready to step out in faith that are, are not going to share that same faith and they're going to look to discourage you. You're really going to do that? Are you sure that's wise? Have you really heard from God? I don't know about that. I don't think I'd do that if I were you. Sometimes they think they're trying to help, but are they hearing from the Lord? And oftentimes they're only simply responding in the natural. They're looking at it not from the perspective of what God can do, but what would I do? What would this look like if I failed? They're making a judgment call based on what seems right in the ordinary, but what does God want you to do? Because he wants you to move in the extraordinary. We serve not an ordinary God, but an extraordinary God who can do great things. And are we allowing him, giving him opportunity to do that? So when you sense God is leading you, don't let the doubts expressed by the faithless drag you down. David had that, but he didn't let it drag him down. He's like, is there not a cause here? Is there not a reason to step out? Take this man down? Let's do it. Is there not a cause? Yes, there is. Well, number two, in order to walk in victory, forsake fleshly means. Jump down to verse 38. Verse 38 says, so Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I've not tested them. So David took them off. <coughs> what happens here is, is Saul sees that David's ready to go to battle. He's like, okay, let's send you out, send you out to the slaughter, but David better, better arm you first. Come put on my armor. And so Saul is fitting David in his armor, but it's not meant to be for David. It's not what David is to wear. It doesn't fit right. It's not tested. David knew that those things were only going to get in the way. He knew this was a battle won through the Lord's help. David knew that God was proven. God's already shown him over and over again how, how David's had to fight off the bears or lions to, to protect the sheep. He's seen God deliver him previous times. And so God knows or sorry, David knows that God has proven. He's already tested him out and seen that the Lord is faithful. So here's the thing for us. Don't put your trust in worldly means. Put your trust in the very creator of the world. Don't rely upon fleshly things, worldly things. Put your trust in the Lord. Let the Lord be the one that brings about the victory for you. David does just that. Thirdly, in order to walk in victory, go in confidence in the Lord. Jump to verse 45. Verse 45 says this, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not say with sword and spear, 
For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. I love that. David saw what Goliath had to offer. You come to me with, with sword and spear, javelin. That's how you approach me. But listen, God, I'm coming at you with something greater. I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord. I'm coming to you in the strength of the Lord, in the power of the Lord. When we're fighting those battles, it doesn't matter how big that giant is or how many we're up against because when we have God on our side, we're always in the majority. We're always on the winning side when we're going forth in the name of the Lord. But you have faith to trust the Lord. That's what God is calling us to do. Those are lessons that we learned from this man, David, who had no business going up against a man like Goliath, but he realizes with God, all things are possible. And you might be thinking, I don't have much to offer. I can't do things like other people do. But God wants to use you specifically in your own ways, looking to use whatever you offer him. Here's David, a simple shepherd boy. What has he got? He's got a sling. David, go gather five stones. <laughs> you see, God just wants us and he's ready to use us with what we have. He's equipped us and he's ready to use that for his glory. David takes this stone now. He starts swinging it around and he releases this thing. That's all God needed him to do. Just release the stone and I'll take care of the rest. I mean, just think, what are the odds? I mean, I know David is probably a sharp shooter, but what are the odds with Goliath probably walking out there with armor all over, head shield, and to swing and to have that rock come out of the sling and hit right in the precise spot between the armor, right in that one spot that's vulnerable and deliver that death blow. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But you see, all God needs us to do is just to do our part and he takes care of the rest. No doubt that stone was guided by the Lord. The death blow was dealt. And God does that work. If we are just simply faithful to say, here's what I got, Lord. I don't know what you're able to do with it, but I give it to you. And you gotta take the rest. And he'll do it. And he'll lead us on into great victories for him. All right. There was an interesting story uh, regarding this whole scene of David and Goliath. There was a certain archaeologist that was digging in the Negev Desert or Negev Desert in Israel. He came upon a sarcophagus containing a mummy. And after examining it, he called the curator of a prestigious natural history museum. He says, you know what? I've just discovered this 3,000-year-old mummy of a man who died of heart failure. This archaeologist exclaimed excitedly. And the curator replied, well, bring him in. We'll check it out. A week later, the amazed curator called the archaeologist, said, you were right about the mummy's age and his cause of death. How in the world did you know that? The archaeologist replied, easy. There was a piece of paper in his hand that read 10,000 shekels on Goliath. Yes, that's right. All right, chapter 18, move along. Chapter 18. Now, to the rest of the book now, from chapter 18 on, we really see this growing animosity of Saul towards David. And it reveals the difference of how Saul dealt with adversity and with how David deals with adversity. Very different men here. Look at, uh, jump down to verse five, chapter 18, verse five. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the woman had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the woman sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Wouldn't that be awesome to hear? Not for Saul. I mean, look at Saul, verse nine or verse eight. He was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s and to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. In other words, he, he viewed with suspicion. He became very critical of David. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. So David, we see he begins to rise in popularity, doesn't he, among all the people in Israel. And that doesn't go over too well with Saul. You can just imagine because Saul's this jealous man and the number one hit single that's climbing the charts right there in that day was, you know, David has killed his tens of thousands, but Saul only his thousands. And Saul just was so bothered by this. He's filled with jealousy and now he's got his eye on David and really just looking to, to take him out. And so in this, again, Saul now has this distressing spirit come upon him. It's interesting to see the connection with Saul's thoughts to his actual spiritual state, right? Because when he gets this jealousy and this kind of rage and suspicion against David, this distressing spirit comes upon him where he has to be soothed again by David's music. You see, when we begin to uh, let a little poison in, I believe we, we give just that open door for Satan to have even more influence in our lives. What began as an open door turned into a floodgate of demonic oppression for Saul. All because he was not taking captive those thoughts, but entertaining them and allowing Satan just to have more influence in his lives, in his life. And this is the tale of two kings, one on the way up and one on the way down. In one hand, there's an instrument of worship. In the other hand, there's an instrument of war. The instrument of worship for helping, the instrument of war for hurting. This is how you can oftentimes discover those who are, who are moving up or those who are on the way down by how they're using what's in their hand. Because these two were both anointed, weren't they? Saul, anointed as Samuel. David now, anointed as Samuel. But they're walking in two different directions. Saul was looking to throw the spear in desperation, dragging people down with him. But David, in humility, just worshiped the Lord and looked to dodge the spears without flinging any back. And by David's actions, we certainly learn some good lessons of how to handle the spears that may get thrown our way because no doubt we've got an enemy that wants to drag us down. And sometimes that work comes through other people looking to throw the spears our way to attack us. How do we deal with these things? Well, look at what David does. First of all, get out of the way, right? It says there in verse 11, Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped his presence twice. He gets out of the way. David doesn't sit around and and try to retaliate. He just moves on. Secondly, keep doing well. David, what he did is he just kept busy. Look at verse 14. 
And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. What's David doing? He just keeps doing well, stays busy, and he behaved wisely. He doesn't sit back and get depressed that somebody's after him, doesn't get bothered by these things. He just stays active and serving and doing what's right and wise and good. Lastly, have good friends that can support you. Notice chapter 18, we didn't read that, but verse one, now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. David and Jonathan enter into a very close, good relationship that is a support to one another. And David's gonna need that on more than one occasion. And Jonathan's gonna provide that for him. May we have those people around us that even though there's people maybe throwing the spear against us, trying to drag us down, that there are others that are holding us up, being that support network for us. And David certainly had that. So as the story unfolds, Saul is looking for opportunity to take David out, right? Saul tried pinning David to the wall a couple times. This wasn't the only time that this happened. Now in chapter 19, Saul gives David a seeming impossible mission as a dowry for his daughter's hand in marriage. The dowry was 100 foreskins of the Philistines. If you do that, David, you can have my daughter Michael in marriage. And Saul, no doubt, is thinking, man, this is gonna be the thing that's gonna take David out. There's no way he's gonna get 100 Philistine foreskins. He may not even wanna try. I, I don't, wouldn't want to, but, <laughs> but yet David goes out and he brings back 200 Philistine foreskins. And he brings him down to Saul and now David becomes Saul's son-in-law. This is kind of like pouring salt in the wound, isn't it? I mean, Saul is trying to take this guy out, but yet David just keeps getting closer to Saul. Now they're related. That's just poetic right there, isn't it? Well, chapter 21 Here we enter in now just to this, you know, David seeing that Saul is hunting him down. Chapter 19 records again, Saul trying to take him out with a spear. And so David is on the move now. He's trying to just get away from Saul. It says in chapter 21, verse one, now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I command you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. Now, David had previously sought help in Samuel, chapter 19. He sought help in Jonathan, chapter 20, details that account first. But now he goes to Ahimelech, the priest. Only this time we see David stooping down to less than godly means because he basically lies to Ahimelech. To Ahimelech. He's, he's deceiving him into thinking that he's on the mission or a mission from the king, from Saul. David ends up getting some bread from the priest, though this was typically reserved only for the priests. Now, it's interesting because Jesus uses the same account when he's being confronted by breaking the law, plucking grains during the Sabbath. And, and 
the religious leaders again are confronting him saying, why are you allowing your disciples to break the law? And Jesus brings up this account of David receiving bread from Ahimelech. Bread that was only given to the priests. But Ahimelech rather showed mercy to David. And what Jesus is pointing out is that the law must never forbid a work of mercy. The law is never written in a way that it should exclude us from showing mercy and grace. And so he uses this account to illustrate that. So from here now, as he's there before the priest, he moves on to Gath. David moves to Gath. Now this is the hometown of Goliath. This is Philistine territory, enemy territory that David is entering into. And you might wonder, David, are you insane here? What are you doing? Well, he's not quite insane yet, but because of this foolish act, he's gonna begin to act like a madman. Look at verse 14 of chapter 21. Then Achish said to his servants, oh, sorry, go to verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David here, he's acting like a madman. He's playing it up, trying to spare his own life, knowing that he's in enemy territory. And the people are wondering, this is the man that killed Goliath. Like, why are we letting him be around us? So David faked being insane. However, through this ordeal, the Lord was just continuing to work through David's insanity, and delivered him. God was faithful to help him through. In fact, it's through this period where David is kind of on the run from Saul, and he's finding himself in some precarious situations. David's facing a lot of, you know, trial and tribulation here, but it's in these times that God is revealing himself to David and his might and his strength, and he's wanting David to learn just simply to be dependent on the Lord and allow God to deliver him. It's often how it is for us. God wants to use the trials of life to bring us to a greater awareness of what he is able to do. C.H. Spurgeon said this, the music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. Affliction is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. Psalm 34, for instance, is a psalm that David wrote while he's there with Achish, in Gath, as he's faking this insanity, as he's looking at himself going, I'm in trouble here. And he's desperately trying to act like a madman so that the people despair his life. And David, in this moment or soon after this encounter, he writes Psalm 34. Here's, here's some verses from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. David, in this moment, he realizes the Lord has spared me. David was brought into a lot of difficult situations that allowed God to do a work and deliver him where David could respond with praise and say, God, you're good. Many of the Psalms are written through these encounters that David went through that were less than fun to go through, but built him up, strengthened him to see what God could do. Chapter 22, here's what we read in verse one. 
David therefore departed from there, Philistine territory, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now, I really like this verse. I love this this scene that we're seeing unfold. Because David knew that he was going to be king. He's been anointed by Samuel. He knows he's on the way. Yet as he is hiding out, 400 men who are all discouraged and discontented, they're bummed out and broke, they come to him to be their leader. David, we want to follow you. And David could have thought, guys, listen, you're not going to help my campaign any. This really isn't good PR for me. I'm going to be the next king. I can't really have you guys hanging out with me. Doesn't look good on me, you know? He could have easily responded that way. But David, he becomes their captain. He becomes their leader. And this is sweet because it's a great picture of what Jesus has done for us. Because we, in the same way as these 400 were a bunch of ragtag misfits who were down and out, but Jesus came for this kind of people. He came for you and me. He could have said, listen, I'm the Lord. You better clean up before you come to me. Get your act together if you expect me to be with you. But he saved us when we're not really, when we weren't really worth saving. We were like these men in debt, debt to sin, distressed by sin, discontented because of sin. But Jesus was willing to become our captain and he delivered us from this demise. That's what David did and it it reminds us of what our greater than David, Jesus Christ, has done for us. I'm thankful for that. I'm glad for that. I was no better than these men. But Jesus came and he plucked us out from our situation and circumstances, set us upon a solid ground and has become our Savior, our Lord, our Captain. And we're grateful for that. And these men, many of them ended up just becoming these these mighty men of David that we're going to be hearing about later on as we continue our, our study um, in 2 Samuel, I believe it is, also in, in, um, in Chronicles. And so these mighty men of David, these guys became a super strong, like, secret service men for David here. When, in the same way, when we come to the Lord in surrender, it's incredible what he can do with us, what he can make us into if we allow him to. Chapter 23 now. David and his men, they go down to save the city of Keilah from the Philistines attacking them. Now Saul hears about this and he's, you know, thinking he's got David trapped because Keilah is this city of of bars and gates and walls. And he's thinking, David's trapped in there. I'm going to be able to come down. Just trap him in there. He's mine. But David ends up escaping and he moves on and he escapes to the Judean countryside west of the Dead Sea and he makes his way to En Gedi. Now, En Gedi, if you've been to Israel before, I love En Gedi. En Gedi is just up from the Dead Sea on the west side there, overlooking the, the Dead Sea. And, and everything around the Dead Sea, I understand, it's just dry, desolate. But En Gedi is like this oasis in the middle of nowhere where there's just like fresh water springs flowing, a little river waterfalls. You can go in and stand on the waterfalls. And there's just vegetation growing around this waterway, it's just a beautiful place, isn't it? I just love it. And Getty is just incredible. And then as you're walking up there, you just see all these, you know, like along the rock face, you see all these like caves and holes. And, and this is the place that David has run to. 
where he's oftentimes uh, hiding out from Saul. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he'd cut Saul's robe. So understand what we're hearing here, or what we're reading here. David is going out to En Gedi. Saul hears about it. He takes 300 men, and they're on the hunt for David. As they're going through En Gedi, Saul goes, I got to hit the bathroom. He goes into a cave. He just so happens to go into the cave that David and his men are hiding out in the back corners of that cave. And there's Saul. He's relieving himself. I mean, just you see just the sovereignty of God in all this, just working all things out, right? Of all the caves to go to, he happens to go to the one that David's in. Now, the men start whispering with David. David, that's Saul. You can take him out right now. He's vulnerable. This is your shot. You can take him down. Saul evidently is like just, you know, grunting a lot or something because he can't hear what's going on. He doesn't know anything that's happening here. And so they're like going, take him out. You got him. But David he responds again in a way that I'm sure many of us wouldn't. Because instead of taking his sword to the head of David, David just goes and he takes the corner of his robe. He just cuts a piece of the robe. And yet that grieved David much, it says. He was sorrowful over that. Why? Because David knew the Lord had given him the throne. And God didn't need David's help to secure that. Saul still had a purpose. And David could say this is still the Lord's anointed. He was still that vessel that was set apart for God's purposes. Those purposes were primarily to refine David, to prepare David for the throne. Saul would be a man that would help in that process. But this was not for David to try and solve and make happen on his own. So David, he withholds from taking out Saul but he's still grievous that he went to the extent that he went to. It says in verse six, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David knew that I don't want to get in the way of what God's doing here. I'm going to let the Lord, this is still, the, uh, until the Lord removes Saul, I'm not going to be the one to do that. I'm going to wait on the Lord's timing here. I'm not gonna try to help God out. I'm not gonna try to step in the way of what God is doing here. I'm gonna just continue to follow and serve the Lord. Now, in that kind of situation, it's easy for many people to kind of justify their actions, to say, well, you know what? He's doing this to me. He's throwing a spirit at me a couple times. He's trying to kill me. So this is just self-defense. And we can think we're justified in taking action. But we're never justified in doing evil to fight evil. We don't 
as believers fight fire with fire. Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the course of action that we as believers need to take. Chapter 25, chapter 25, verse one, we have the death of Samuel recorded. Samuel here dies now. There's not a lot written, just one verse about Samuel's death and where he's laid to rest. You know, Samuel lived a pretty humble and, and quiet life. We don't read other kinds of things with Samuel as you would with a guy like David who went out and slew thousands of Philistines and triumphed over the giant. Yet Samuel goes down in scripture as one of the godly giants for Israel. He was the last of the judges. He's the first of the prophets and he lived in simple service and separation to the Lord. He's a man where we don't read about failures or, or setbacks, but is consecrated to the Lord and he's consistent with the Lord. Not flashy, but faithful. And that's really all that God requires of us, right? You don't have to be flashy. You don't have to be doing the most extreme stuff. Just be faithful to what God's called you to do. And that was the life of Samuel. The rest of chapter 25 is quite a story. It's the original Beauty and the Beast story. It's about the relationship of a married couple, Abigail and Nabal. Nabal, uh, Abigail, sorry, is a real beauty and she captures David's heart. But Nabal, her husband, is a scoundrel. In fact, his very name means fool. That's who Nabal is. He's hard-headed and a harsh individual. The story goes like this, and let me <clears throat> just sum this up for you. Nabal is out shearing his sheep, and David, according to custom, sent some young men to ask for a gift in return for the, the protection that he's provided for Nabal's flocks. But Nabal answers David's servants in such a selfish and rude manner that David, he just becomes angry. He starts heading toward Carmel, where, where Nabal was. And he comes with about 400 of his men to basically take Nabal out, to punish him, you know. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, she catches wind of this, that David's coming. So she goes out to meet him and she brings with her all this food and choice delicacies to come and sort of, you know, appease David and offer a gift to him to kind of, you know, console him a, a bit. So she comes and she seeks the forgiveness on behalf of her husband in a very gracious way. And David replies, look at this in verse uh, 32 of chapter 25. Verse 32 of chapter 25. Then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning late, no males would have been left to Nabal. Interesting. And so David, he appreciates what Abigail does. He, he, he just kind of blesses her for what she's done here in, in sparing, you know, the life. He's like, man, if you hadn't come, there wouldn't be any sons left to Nabal. So Nabal, I'm sorry, Abigail, she does this great work. And then she returns back to her husband who's out feasting. He has some stuff to drink here. And then it says that his heart died with him and, and he became like a stone. And then 10 days later, he dies. So Nabal ends up dying anyways. 
David doesn't have to do it again. Just God kind of doing the work. But now, listen to what Sandy Adams says. I think this is, is really good for, for us just to, to remember. Um, this isn't the situation for everybody, but for some, this might be a real help. It says, Sandy Adams says, Abigail was a beautiful woman married to a rich scoundrel. Abigail was a believer married to an unbeliever. Perhaps you're a believer in Jesus married to a Nabal. Well, maybe your spouse is not a scoundrel like Nabal, but they're still an unbeliever and you want out. There's a country song with the lyrics, I don't want no more of the cheese, I just want out of the trap. Maybe that's how you feel about your marriage. But you need to learn a lesson from Abigail. Rather than feel stuck with your spouse, she did two things. She stuck by him and stuck up for him. In the end, her life with Nabal was responsible for forming the woman that David admired. Let me suggest if you're married to Nabal, God will use your marriage to mold you into an Abigail. One day you'll be carried to the palace by the son of David, Jesus Christ. For now, God is using your experiences to form a beauty that he desires. I think that's really well put and just a good reminder for us. Abigail was a faithful wife. She stood by her husband and stuck up for her husband. But in the end, she was brought to the eventual king. Chapter 26. Is David on the run again from Saul? David and Abishai come upon Saul's camp. And there's Saul and all his men, they're sleeping. And again, Abishai's like, here's your chance, David. You can take Saul out. But once again, David is reminded, this isn't my job. I'm not gonna touch the Lord's anointed. So David just takes Saul's spear to show him later on that, Saul, I had you. I've got your spear. I'm not out to get you. Lay off, basically. Chapter 27, we see a lapse of faith on the part of David. Because he starts to think he's pushed Saul's buttons too much now, and now he's going to perish. David begins to worry for his life. So he flees to Philistine country once again and dwells at Gath. Achish, now the, the king of Gash, he is being told by some of his men, David shouldn't be here with us. He's, he's the giant killer. He's killed our, our, our you know, greatest fighter in Goliath. And they're all thinking, yeah, what, what is David doing here? So Achish, the king, he sends him off to Ziklag, says, you can have your own town. You go, you go dwell in Ziklag there. So David and his men go out there and dwell in Ziklag. And from there, they go out raiding against Israel's enemies. But then David would come back to Achish and Achish would be saying, hey, so what have you been up to today? Oh, it's been out. And, and he would basically lie to Achish, say that they've been taking out Israel. So David here, he compromises in his position. He goes into enemy territory and now he keeps falling into greater sin by lying and deceiving Achish. This just isn't gonna bode well for David. Living a lie is never gonna be profitable, right? And David is just gonna have to keep, you know, to, to be a, a good liar, you gotta have a good memory because you gotta remember all the lies that you spun and, and you gotta make sure you're not contradicting yourself. And David is having to be careful about that. I'm not trying to help you know how to be a good liar here. That's not the point, but, but it's a difficult thing. It's never gonna profit when you're living that life of deception and lies as David is entering into here. And again, he has no business hanging out in Philistine territory. Oftentimes, when we think, I'm gonna be okay if I put myself in this place here that we have no business being in and thinking 
I'll be okay. I'm strong. I can handle it. I understand that oftentimes that's kind of the, the avenue that more sin enters in, and that's what's happening with David. Chapter 28 now gives us a very interesting scene. As Saul is looking for counsel, now here's the thing, the Lord's not answering him any longer because Saul never listened to begin with. He never obeyed the Lord. So the Lord just says, you don't want my counsel. You don't take it to heart. So the Lord's not answering Saul. Samuel is dead. So Saul's got nobody to turn to. So what does he do? He goes to consult a medium, a spiritist, to get counsel. Basically, he desires this medium to bring Samuel up from the dead. Now, interesting because Saul had banned all the mediums from the land. Saul didn't want anybody practicing this once upon a time. So Saul disguises himself and he comes to this medium that has pointed out that there's this woman there that does this business. He disguises himself and the woman right off the front, you know, she's like, uh, why are you here? Don't you know that Saul has banned us from doing this? And Saul's trying to, you know, just in a disguise. It's okay, don't worry. Everything's gonna be fine. There's no worries here. So Saul convinced her that it's all okay. Look at verse 11 of chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 11. Then the woman said to him, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And now when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. Now, this is a very strange occurrence that we see here. And, and there's a lot of people that hold different views as to what's really going on because this is very odd, very strange. Now, what I believe is happening, and this is my view, it may not be a correct view, but it's the view that I'm holding on to. Because um, like I said, there's a lot of different views here. But I believe what happened is that God basically interrupted this woman's seance. And he allowed Samuel to appear before Saul and speak to Saul. Because Saul's not hearing anything from anyone else. So he allows Samuel again to speak into Saul's life. This wasn't some spirit, some believe that it was some other spirit that, you know, this woman was saying was Samuel, but she freaks out. This isn't some familiar spirit that maybe she tapped into before who maybe just masqueraded as whoever that person wanted them to be. This woman freaks out. When Samuel appears, she knows this is the real deal. And she suddenly realizes that this is Saul there, perhaps because Samuel speaks to him. But she knows what's going on. She knows that this is Samuel appearing that God allows this to happen to speak into Samuel's, or sorry, speak into Saul's life. So Saul now, or sorry, Samuel begins to speak to Saul. And, and basically, verse 16 and 20 is what Samuel is saying to Saul. Again, basically saying, listen, the kingdom has been taken from you and it's been given to another. And now this time he says, and it's been given to David, right there in verse 17. And he goes on to say, and because you've, you know, disobeyed the Lord, you've not followed him, <clears throat> you're gonna fall. You and your sons are gonna die in battle tomorrow, he says in verse 19. 
And at that, Saul fell to the ground in verse 20, and he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. Samuel, or sorry, Saul, got a whole lot more than he bargained for in this encounter with this medium. He's hoping to just get some direction, but yet he's told, you're gonna die tomorrow. That's not what he was looking for. Well, chapter 29 to 30 details the Philistines moving out to battle against Israel. Now remember, David is still hanging out with the Philistines. He's been in Ziklag, Philistine territory. He's been raiding different enemies of Israel, but now the Philistines are going out to Israel. And David's kind of falling in line with them to go into battle. And they're all thinking like, David, what are you doing? You're coming to fight with us against your people? And David's like, yeah, man, let's do it. But yet they send David back once more to Ziklag. And as David returns back to Ziklag, he finds that Ziklag has been raided, burnt down, and all the people have been taken away by the Amalekites. And so David goes and he seeks retribution. He goes and he takes out the Amalekites with his men and they restore everything that was taken from them. And so that's what we see in chapters 29 to 30. Chapter 31 is the battle at Gilboa. The Philistines come against Israel and defeat them. And just like Samuel told Saul, Saul and his sons die. It's a tragic end to life that was so bent on taking out a life that his own life was now taken out by the enemy. Saul, all he wanted to do was pursue David and take him out. But now Saul's the one that's taken out by the enemy. Now he was slain. He kind of hit down, left for dead. His armor, he, he tells his armor bearer, you know, Take a sword and thrust it through me so that I die. He wasn't quite dead. He was, he was just lying there. And the armor bearer's like, no, I can't do that to you, Saul. And Saul doesn't want to be left for anybody else. Even at the point of death, he's still worried about his image. He doesn't want anybody to see him like that. And so Saul takes his own sword and he falls into it. Now, there's a, another kind of addendum to the story that we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that I think really lays out for us the way that Saul died that has some significance for us. But again, we'll leave that for, for next week, all right? We'll cover 2 Samuel next week. It'll be our last gathering midweek service until the new year. Okay, we'll take a break over Christmas. But um, Saul was just kind of one of those lies that, had a tragic ending. He was a man that had a lot of flaws, shortcomings, and sin. And it's the same for all of us. But with Saul, he never walked in repentance. If he had, God would have forgiven him and used him. But his was a life of unrealized opportunity because he failed to give it all over to the Lord. And it tells us in, in 1 Samuel 26, 21, after David had kind of showed him, Saul, I could have taken you out, but I didn't. Here's how Saul responds. I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Now, G. Campbell Morgan says this. Behold, I played the fool. This is the whole story of man. 
Every one of us are those that can say, I played the fool. The difference is, are you going to remain as a fool? Or are you going to surrender and give it to the Lord and say, God, I need you. Because without you, I am just a fool. Filled with sin and flaws. But Lord, would you come and forgive me? Make me whole and use me to be the man that you, or the man or woman that you want me to be. That's where Saul came up short. He's a man that was started off head and shoulders above everybody else, but he came up short because he never would and never was willing to walk in repentance and give it over to the Lord and say, though he, he has the notion there and he can verbalize that, he never put that into action. I've sinned, I've played the fool, I've erred exceedingly. He should have taken that and allowed that to change now direction and course for his life. But we know that he never did. And so his was a life of unrealized opportunity and uh, coming up short. May that not be said of us. We don't have to play the fool if we will simply commit to follow Jesus. So let's pray. And uh, I'll cover a couple things after. Heavenly Father, we just look to you right now. And as we've gone through this account and looked at many lessons, Lord, lessons about fighting and moving forward in victory, lessons about dodging those spears thrown at us, lessons about how to live our life in a way that is faithful to you and honoring to you. As we look at a life like Saul and see the end to his life where he never was willing to just surrender and repent. I pray that that would not mark our lives, but that we instead would not play the fool, but would just live in surrender to you and follow you in all that we do. So Lord, help us to serve you and live for you, to honor you in all that we do. And just do that work in our lives now. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.